Good morning. And Happy New Year. So, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I was preparing dinner, and uh, I had cooked this uh, really big pork roast. It was on sale. Um, so, you know, I had a big pork shoulder, and I was uh, glad that I would have a lot of leftovers, right? And so as I was fixing this plate, this pork shoulder, uh, I'd cut it up, I'd fix my plate, uh, well, I was halfway through cutting it up when the power went out. And so there I was in the darkness all of a sudden. And, you know, I should have learned from this recent nor'easter that we had to have a flashlight handy, right? That should have been the lesson, but I, I didn't learn that lesson. And so there I was stumbling in the dark, doing whatever I could to find just enough light to be able to finish the task. And my conclusion is that I just tend to take light for granted, right? I don't consider the importance of light. In our text today, we'll see that as bad as stumbling through physical darkness can be, stumbling through uh, spiritual darkness is far worse. I hope that as we go through the text today, we can behold God's goodness we can see that it is good to walk in the light and we can recognize how our sin hinders us from the light and see that walking in the light is dependent on God's work in our hearts. I will argue that our confidence that we have come to know God is grounded in the fruit that he bears as the gospel works in our hearts. Before we begin, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that you have revealed to us, Lord God. We thank you that uh, you have made yourself known. We thank you that we can come to know you. We pray, Lord, that uh, your light would shine today, Lord God. Let uh, Let us experience you, Lord God. Let us see you as you are, Lord God, that we might be made like you. God, transform us by the working of the Spirit in our hearts, Lord God. Let us trust in you for this transformation, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for today is uh, in 1 John chapter 1, through, uh, 1, verse 5 to 2, 6. Um, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, this is on page 1301. Um, you can also follow along in the bulletin. This letter was written to believers in Asia Minor uh, who were facing deception from people who in the past had claimed to be followers of Christ. And while it's not entirely clear what this deception was, what we do know is that John is writing to encourage true believers in their confidence in the gospel. In fact, John makes his purpose for writing very clear in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. This entire letter is directed at this goal of instilling confidence in those who have truly placed their trust in Jesus. 
There are three major themes that are observed throughout 1 John, and we see these themes in our text today. That is, correct doctrine, holiness, and love. And uh, prior to our text, John uh, sets the stage for this letter by appealing as an eyewitness. John's authority, authority to teach with such confidence on the assurance of eternal life comes from the fact that he is testifying as an eyewitness to eternal life. He walked with Christ. He testifies to that which he has seen and heard and received not from man, but from God. So we turn now, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This message that John heard and now announces, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. No darkness at all. We see in this first verse that this message was received by John and then announced to the readers. And now it has been announced to us. This is not a self-discovered truth. In fact, this is not a man-discovered truth. Truth, this is a God-revealed truth. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When we trust in our own feelings about God to understand who he is and what he is like, the result is a God that looks a lot like us. In contrast, when we trust God's revelation of himself, we do not make God in our own image, but we behold him as he is. This passage reveals that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This means he is totally and completely holy, totally and completely righteous. There is absolutely no hint of sin or darkness in him. His divine attributes are totally complete. To behold God is light and in him there is no darkness is to behold the complete goodness of God. Recognizing God's goodness is crucial for our understanding of him. The rest of this passage is predicated on this truth, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we wish to grasp the meaning of this text, we must meditate on this truth. Let's consider our own understanding of God's goodness In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How can Tozer make such a bold claim? It's because our understanding of God has a profound impact on every aspect of our lives. Later in 1 John, uh, John goes on to say that, When God appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he really is. We shall see him as he is. The the knowledge of God that transforms us is the knowledge that comes when we encounter God's attributes firsthand. This is not merely theological awareness of God's attributes. 
It is the knowledge that goes beyond the facts of who God is into the experience of who God is. And it's not enough to superficially agree that God is light without considering what this really means. This is a profound truth. We must steep in this truth. It is by continually beholding God's goodness that this truth is cemented in our hearts. When the fog of life's troubles appears, the goodness of God becomes hard to see. In these seasons, we cling to the knowledge of God's goodness, even when the experience seems like a distant memory. So I must ask myself, when the hardness of life comes, do I still see that God is good? Do I really believe that God has my best interests at heart? How can I trust that God is good in the midst of trouble, in the midst of toil and strife? Well, this is the message that we have received. By God's grace, we trust that he is good in the midst of hardness in life. As we behold his goodness, and as time after time he proves himself faithful, our faith grows. We learn that we can trust in his goodness. We can relinquish the feeling that we need to control because we trust the one who is in control. The knowledge of God's goodness does not just sit in our heads and our hearts without impacting impacting the rest of our lives. When we behold the light of God, the striking contrast of our own sin grips our conscience. This leads us to two truths that we see in our text. One is that those that have fellowship with God walk in light because they see that it is good to walk in the light. And secondly, we see that those who walk in the light treat sin with the seriousness that it deserves. So let's go to this first point. We uh, recognize that it is good to walk in the light. Those who, who uh, have fellowship with God walk in the light. We continue in verses uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What does John mean when he says walk in darkness? What is he talking about, walking in darkness? He's describing a person who professes to know God, but who lives as if they do not. This person may, in theory, agree that God is good. Why else would they want to claim identity with him? But they live as if God's word is not to be trusted. They prefer living in darkness, even though God has revealed that true life is found in the light. They would choose to chase Uh, earthly desires of the flesh rather than the godly pursuits of a life governed by the Spirit. The result of walking in darkness is that there's no real fellowship with God. 
only a deceptive claim of fellowship. Walking in the light, on the other hand, is the picture of a person whose life is that of obedience to God. This person believes that God is good. And not only this, this person believes that God's word is to be trusted. We see elsewhere in John that walking in the light essentially means loving God and loving neighbors. After all, the law can be summed up in these words, love God and love your neighbors. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God and with each other. Indeed, as a church, our fellowship flows out of our fellowship with God. Our fellowship with each other ought to flow out of our fellowship with God. We're also told that if we walk in the light, Jesus cleanses us from sin. Now, is John saying that forgiveness is dependent on good works, dependent on our ability to walk in the light? No, he's not saying that. What he is saying is that those who are in Christ are cleansed from their sin by Christ. Forgiveness is dependent on the grace of God that has been poured out on us. John paints this picture of the contrast between one walking in darkness and one walking in light. Let us recognize that it is good to walk in the light. The difference between these two scenarios is stark, and the consequences for continuing to walk in darkness is dire. To recognize that walking in the light is good is to recognize that living in obedience to God's word is good. God has given us this word to make us wise for salvation. Abundant life is found here. Not in the darkness of earthly desires, but in the word that God has revealed to us. Some of us might hear these words and We might feel the heavy weight of condemnation. Are you fearful of this image of a person claiming fellowship with God yet walking in darkness? Maybe you feel a discontinuity between what you profess to believe and how you live. Brothers and sisters, there's good news for you. Do not despair. For the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Behold God's goodness. Behold his faithfulness and his mercy. And repent, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. See the goodness of God and the goodness of the word that he has spoken to us and come to the light. He invites us into the light. Maybe you try to walk in the light but you find yourself failing again and again. You you believe God is good and you believe that his word is good, but you cannot obey it. And so you want to trust Christ for forgiveness, but you struggle to feel forgiven. Let this encourage you. Forgiveness does not rest in your goodness, but in God's goodness, in his mercy.
Our merit before God does not grant us forgiveness. Christ alone cleanses us from sin. Christ alone cleanses us from sin. You might be saying, but how can I walk in the light? I I know it's good to obey God's word, but no one is able to perfectly keep it. How can I walk in the light? Sin does not simply go away in the life of the believer. We continue to wrestle with sin as long as we live on this side of eternity. Though sin will persist, our treatment of sin matters. What we will soon see is that we ought to treat sin with the seriousness that it deserves. It is a serious matter. And it deserves a serious solution. So, next we see that those who walk in the light treat sin with the seriousness that it deserves. We read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This section deals with the implications of how we view sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We fail to recognize what sin really is and how it grips our hearts and breaks our fellowship with God and with others. We fail to see the vast chasm that exists between sinful man and our holy and righteous God. It is a vast chasm. Moving to verse 9, we see that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. Though the chasm is large, God's grace is larger. Forgiveness for our sin rests not in us, but in God's mercy and his faithfulness to forgive. Not only does God rid us of our sins, but he cleanses us from unrighteousness, giving us the righteous identity of Christ. Again, in verse 10, John returns to what happens when we deny that we have sinned. This time he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we are denying the very word of God. In doing so, we are accusing God of lying. Our self-deceptive notion of who we think we are replaces the truth as revealed in God's word. In the first two verses of chapter 2, we see that first, these facts about sin did not give us license to sin. John writes, so that we would not sin. And we also see that Jesus Christ is our advocate who stands in the gap between our sin and our holy God in whom there is no darkness 
at all. Christ fulfills the righteous requirement that we could not. He is the propitiation for our sin. This means that he is our atonement. His blood makes the way for our reconciliation with God, a restored relationship with our righteous, holy, loving God. Sin has devastating consequences for our soul. It is like a cancer that totally destroys. It tends to grow and consume all that is in its path. And we might see some sin as harmless, or we could even be deceived into thinking, that seems life-giving. And we might think, it makes me feel free. How could it be bad? This is a great and terrible deception. Though we think the sinful desires of our hearts will satisfy us, they are incapable of satisfying us. And so sin grows and grows until little by little it has consumed us. And we are left with a void feeling of emptiness and lostness. This is the epitome of walking in darkness. Sin is rebellion against God. At its core, it can always be traced back to doubt of God, doubt of God's word, his promises, and his goodness. And you might be saying, well, I don't doubt God's word or his goodness. Do I still need to worry about sin? This sin problem is not unique to those whose doubt of God is obvious and on the surface. Until we stand before the Lord in his glory, we continue to wrestle with sin. We all have a sin problem. And this passage depicts two types of people with regard to sin. Those who try to deal with sin on their own and those who cast their sin on Christ. Do you grasp the seriousness of sin? How it separates us from God and from each other. It is a corrosive force that hardens our hearts and keeps us from the abundant life that Christ has come to offer to all who trust in him. And yet, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. How are you trying to deal with your sin problem? Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your own merit to deal with your sin problem? Or are you trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin? In the following verses, John synthesizes these con- uh, concepts, concluding that those who come to know God walk in the way in which he walked. Continuing in chapter 2, verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we walk in his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. 
Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Those who have come to know God walk in the way in which he walked. John explains that the gospel at work in our hearts is evidence that we have come to know God. Once again, John reiterates that we cannot claim to know God, yet continue to walk in darkness. He concludes by saying, By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. The fruit of abiding in Christ is walking in the way in which he walked. Walking in this way is the natural result of abiding in Christ. It is like a tree planted by water. It's the natural result of abiding in Christ. As we abide, a heart transformation occurs. This is similar to the change that occurs as a runner trains. You see, our bodies have this amazing ability to adapt to physical exercise As a runner consistently trains, the heart is actually able to pump more blood with each pump. And and the body develops more capillaries to distribute oxygen to the muscles. And even our blood cells develop the ability to carry more hemoglobin so that we can effectively get oxygen to our muscles. And all of these changes occur to help a runner run further and faster. As this runner runs day after day and week after week, these physiological changes take place. The runner is not thinking, oh, I need more capillaries. You don't have to think about that. It's, it's the natural result of running. No one reaches their full potential in a single training session It is through the steady cycle of training and rest. Peak athletic performance is the sum total of a life of training, eating right, and resting well. Each element is essential for these physiological transformations to take place. And abiding in Christ is similar to this. As we abide in Christ, a spiritual transformation occurs We do not not have to think about it. God makes it happen. It's the natural result. Consistently acting in faith enables us to exhibit greater faith, just as consistently running enables a runner to run faster races. Walking in the way in which Christ walked is the sum total of a life devoted to Christ. It comes as a result of consistent time in scripture and prayer as meditation on scripture and the spiritual disciplines, but also important is our times of rest and relationship with each other. This is what it means to abide in Christ. It's to remain in him. In every aspect of life devoted to Christ. Such abiding enables us to walk in the light, to love God and to love others. No matter how adamantly I claim to be a runner, 
if I do not train, these physiological changes do not occur. I can tell everyone that I'm preparing for a race, but when race day comes, the truth will be revealed. We can put on this facade of abiding in Christ. We can make it seem like we have fellowship with God. We can say we have fellowship with him. But at the end, the truth will be displayed. We cannot hide from the results. Brothers and sisters, do you see the fruit that comes from abiding in Christ? Do you walk in the way in which he walked? Now, I can tell you that this is an ongoing process. We, we can't say, I know, I can't say that I've reached the end, that I walk in the way in which Christ walked, but I can see the fruits as I look back and see these heart transformations occurring. Do you love God? Do you trust that his commandments are good for you? Do you love your neighbors? Are you concerned for others? These are other image bearers of God. John will say later in this letter, how can you love God who you can't see if you don't love your brother who you can see? We cannot love God and not love our neighbors. If you're not seeing this in your life, if, if you have not come to know God, today I tell you, you can know God and you can know that you know God. He invites us to come into the light. If you have not come to know him, I, I, I plead with you to consider these things, consider this truth that God is good. And if you do profess faith in Christ, I implore you, abide in him. Remain in him. Let him work in your heart. And if you are seeing the fruit of abiding in Christ, be encouraged. This is how we know that we have come to know him, the God of the universe. We have come to know him. And this is how we know. John is not writing because we do not know. He is writing because we know. And he's writing to give us confidence. So be encouraged and be exhorted to abide in Christ. In conclusion, walking in the light requires recognizing that God is light, that the light is good, that sin hinders us from walking in the light, and that we must rely on Christ's work in us to walk in the light. Walking in the light is the result of a life of abiding in Christ. I'm not suggesting that by our actions we can earn salvation. I am saying that our confidence before God is the result of our faith in him. This is what is revealed in the word. Consider the difference between belief and faith. Belief allows us to agree with these truths, even to think that these truths are good. But faith does not stop there. Faith is akin to trusting. It drives us to action because we trust that God is good and we trust that his word is good and trustworthy. Trusting 
and our own goodness is a false gospel of legalism. The distinction between this action-provoking faith and a gospel of legalism is this. Legalism says, if I walk in the light, I can get to God. But the gospel of Christ says that in your own strength, you cannot walk in the light. You walk in the light because of the work that God does in you as you live by faith. In other words, walking in the light is not the means by which we get to God, but it is the result of being with God. It is the result of abiding in Christ. This is why we start by beholding God's goodness. See that God is good. Recognize that it is good to walk in the light. Acknowledge that our sin hinders us from walking in the light. And continually trust Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And lastly, abide in him each day. This is what it means to walk in the light. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the light that you have revealed to us, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us confidence to be in your presence, Lord, by the blood of Christ who cleanses us from all sins. Lord, we thank you for your great and glorious gospel. We pray that uh, you would uh, speak these truths to our heart. Let us understand them, not merely in our head, but let us understand them in the deepest part of our being, Lord. We trust you and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.